Okay, I have never been interested in William Burroughs. You know who this is? Beat writer, author of Junkie and Naked Lunch. To me, it's like he was somebody glorifying and, and fetishizing heroin. He was into grand pronouncements like, Nobody seems to ask the question what words actually are and exactly their relationship to the human nervous system. This wasn't my thing. Like, I didn't see what the big deal was. His ideas didn't seem interesting. I knew there are lots of really smart people who love him. I did not get it. And then I heard this radio documentary about him. And there's no other way to say this. I got it. I saw why people go nuts for him. The documentary was made last year to commemorate Burroughs' 100th birthday, commissioned by BBC Radio. And like, first of all, the sheer craft of this documentary was just a thing to behold finding people who knew Burroughs and sorting through archival sound and it has this beautiful structure. But what really won me over is that it is not reverential about Burroughs. It thoroughly explains why he is such a mythic, revered figure, but it doesn't buy into the myth. And they do this totally untraditional kind of narration where the rock star Iggy Pop, who is apparently a huge Burroughs fan, both narrates the show and comments on the narration that the show producer has written to the show producer all through the show. I have never heard anything like it. It's one of the best hours of radio I heard last year, and one of the most original. Burroughs' 101st birthday is this week. And to commemorate it, I'm going to play you this documentary, okay? It's going to happen right now. So from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. And without further delay, I hand this over to producer Colin McNulty and his presenter, they're Brits. That's the word they use, presenter, for the narrator. His presenter, Iggy Pop. Heads up, there are some impolite words in here and one racist term. If you're listening to this by podcast or over the internet, you'll be hearing these words without beeps. And we've also included a few full sentences here with sexual content that had to be cut from the American broadcast of the episode. If you are somebody who prefers a less explicit version of the show, maybe you have kids wandering in and out as you listen, you can get that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. British radio, as you're about to hear, is more permissive than American radio when it comes to sexual content. Though they did begin their broadcast of the show with their version of a listener advisory, um, <clears throat> not like ours at all. A warning. The following program contains references to homosexuality, drug use, sex with aliens, violence, and kitty cats. What did you expect? Good. <laughs> Iggy. Hey, how you doing? Good. How you doing? You were casing the joint. I was sorry. <laughs> Not I'm at so all. Great, I get lost. Well, and you were going to be punctual, right? Yeah, exactly. Sit down, please, for a little bit. Okay, cool. Um, what are we doing? This is William Burroughs' one hundredth birthday, and uh, we're taking a look at his life, his times, and his work. I didn't write this stuff, but I'm willing to present. All right. <laughs> All right that's fine, man. I, I will really hope you put that line in there. I didn't write this stuff. I'm not that close to the take of BBC Four or this whole thing. I'm gonna be honest with you. Yeah, Presenter yeah. to me, I feel like I should have a little hat. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for star time? Yes. Ready to rumble? That would, I could do those voices. 
At this particular time, we'd like to introduce the star of the show. Yeah, yeah. Colin McNulty! All right, let's go. Let's do it. You ready? I'm ready. Now, I've met William Burroughs once and have been inspired by him, but I am not an expert on Burroughs, unlike this guy. I'm Oliver Harris. I'm a professor of American literature. I'm the author and editor of ten books on or about William Burroughs. The strange thing is that a million people who never heard of William Burroughs can sing lines from The Ticket That Exploded, and that's because Burroughs' book is where Iggy Pop found the raw materials of Lust for Life. It's where Johnny N comes from, along with those hypnotising chickens and the flesh gimmick and the strip tease in the torture film. Pop responded to the way Burroughs was working back in the 1960s in a kind of montage way that we now take for granted in the digital era, but Burroughs was pioneering it. This is coming out of some lust for life, all right. He's not just in my music. Burroughs is everywhere. He's in Dylan's Tombstone Blues. He's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Two Rows Behind Paul, right next to Marilyn Monroe. He inspired band names like The Soft Machine. Not a great band. And Steely Dan, which is named after a strap-on dildo in Naked Lunch. I didn't know that. The world was introduced to the phrase heavy metal in the book Nova Express. He worked with Kurt Cobain on a spoken word track. The priests, they called him. Like tuberculosis, folks. As Lou Reed said, without William, there is nothing. I am writing for uh, people who are interested in exploring unexplored uh, psychic areas. This month, it has been a hundred years since the birth of William Seward Burroughs II. By the time he died, the man left behind a humongous body of work. Bear with us. It's gonna get weird. There'll be drugs, sex, violence, aliens, the beats, of course, Tangiers, Paris, New York, and cats. We'll play around with cut-ups, too, but that'll be explained. We've trawled through Burroughs' work and the archives, particularly Burroughs' The Movie, a film directed by Howard Bruckner, which is being re-released later this year. We've also spoken to many people that have been permanently touched by William Burroughs. I'm looking at my little collection here. I have the book Queer by William Burroughs, and it's autographed to John Waters with admiration and friendship, William Burroughs, November 3rd, 1985, at the Mary Boone Gallery. Exhibit A, director John Waters. Burroughs gave him a name that stuck. 
The Pope of Trash. Yes, I've been shamelessly milking that title, The Pope of Trash, for years. As a matter of fact, as I'm sitting here, I'm wearing a long cloak to the floor and an imperial margarine crown that says <laughs> that says The Pope of Trash on it as we speak. But I grew up reading William Burroughs. I mean, I went to Catholic school and sat there and read Junkie, and the Christian brothers were so stupid, they had never heard of William Burroughs and thought, isn't it nice? He's reading. But they had no idea what I was reading. He was a role model for all of us. We all grew up reading him. He, when we were in high school, when we were stuck in suburbia somewhere trying to get away, we read him and he ignited our imaginations. He, he let us dare to try something that we've been told we should never do. He was a bad guardian angel that got us out of the house. But besides the writing, Burroughs the man is legendary. His hobbies, his personality, the way he lived his life became mythic. He was conformist America's dark nemesis. The mugwump slips the deuce over the boy's head and tightens the knot. He wrote graphically about sex. He moves in behind the boy and shoves his cock up the boy's ass. He stands there moving in circular gyrations. He was openly gay. We are a precarious minority. we got to fight for our lives. If they're opposed to gay state, we're going to find them, track them down. Kill him. I think Burroughs was the first militant gay person, I believe, that would dare to say that. So even the other beatniks were scared of him, I think. I, th- I think William out-hipped all of them, really, because he was so alarming and so scary and so macabre. Well, I would use any weapons at my disposal in order to defend my premises. Despite having shot his wife, Burroughs was obsessed with guns and weapons. You had a razor-sharp double-edged knife, you could whip it out and cut someone's throat before he knew what was happening. Not anticipating any trouble, because I don't like violence. And he was a heroin addict. The whole drug problem started when they made drugs illegal. He slid the needle in. A red orchid bloomed at the bottom of the dropper. Watching the solution rush into the boy vein, sucked by silent thirst of blood. I mean, he was everything. He he took drugs. He was gay. He he did things that no one dared mention, especially together, because gay people were kind of square then, the ones that people knew about. So he was a junkie gay person, which really caused a lot of trouble. And unashamed. The mythic Burroughs was an old man in a three-piece suit with this nasal voice rising up like this, railing against the world with one hand on the typewriter and the other pushing a needle into his arm. I could do it pretty good. (laughs) You could do a damn good Burroughs impression. I only shot heroin once in my life because I had to in respect of William Burroughs. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say. But I did try it once. And you shouldn't because you can get hepatitis C from trying it just once. I don't have it, but I know people that do. William Burroughs was a bad influence on me, and I'm, I thank him for that. But not everyone appreciates the Burroughs myth. I, I don't just take the, the Burroughs myth with a pinch of salt. I view it as an unpleasant slug crawling across the lawn of, of literature, and I like to pour salt on it. The writer will self. Do you like his stuff? You said yes I to told you, you I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Known smartass. <laughs> When I was at school, I, I got the uh, English prize when I was 16, and I asked for a copy of The Naked Lunch. I used to have it with the sort of school coat of arms on a book plate in the front of it. Um, having used heroin yourself, 
I, mean, I think used is a bit of an understatement. I was a heroin addict on and off for pushing a quarter of a century. So, <laughs> For myself, uh, I find the whole Burroughs myth pretty repulsive, actually, because I understand what happened to me. I was, uh, you know, an addict in waiting. You know, I got my form prize or my English prize of the Naked Lunch, and, and a year and a half later I was sticking needles in my arm. Was it that direct for you? Well, I'm not saying it made me do it. I'm saying that my attraction to Burroughs' work was very much to do with the mythos, and particularly to do with the sort of mythos that surrounded him because of being a heroin addict. And that's the point about Burroughs, is that he exists. You could be lying in some pestilential, piss-soaked squat in the bowels of the city, listening to some moron, totaled on drugs, drooling on, and talking about Burroughs because Burroughs was their Leon Trotsky. He was their Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the Pope. I'd rather belong to the priesthood than be with the guy who was lying on the carpet drooling about them. That's all. That's all there is to it, though. One day, Burroughs found himself in the possession of some morphine syringes, and he tried junk for the first time. Morphine hits the backs of the legs first, then the back of the neck. A spreading wave of relaxation, slackening the muscles away from the bones so that you seem to float without outlines. I became addicted to drugs before I'd written anything. And actually, my first book, Junkie, was simply an account of my experiences. I think it was medicine for the dude. It's painful. Yeah. It's painful to be a human being. Mm. I, I'm not even half anymore. I can't take it. Mm. You know, I've never been more than half at mm. one time. I think that, that his genius, in as much as he has any, and you see it in ample evidence uh, in, in Junkie, is that he makes of the condition of the addict uh, a synecdoche for the condition of everybody. There are all sorts of things you can get out of this guy's books mm. without having to be interested in whatever he thought about opiates. I think the way to read Junkie is not as a book about heroin addiction at all. It's a book about the condition of modern man under developed capitalistic societies. William was on and off junk for the rest of his life. His addiction followed and pushed him everywhere. Flash forward to Burroughs living in his New York home, The Bunker. Yeah, I saw Bill take junk. It almost seemed like someone had put a junk supermarket right smack in the middle of the punk world to destroy them. Writer and biographer Victor Bacris. Everyone had a copy of Junkie. They read them over and over again, but they didn't seem to get the real message of it because they seemed to think it was really cool to take heroin with William Burroughs. Uh, hi there. Colin, are we going to tape? James Grauerholtz was Burroughs' friend and manager for over 20 years. Every time I went to New York, I saw a slightly out-of-control scene Running the bank accounts, I could see it flowing out of the ATM down the street from the bunker. He, he was looking for a pastoral retreat, and I was looking to lure him to it for his sake, to get him away from all the young wannabe hipsters ringing the buzzer of the bunker, breaking out the baggies of dope, and saying, hey, I brought you a gift, you know. 
it was a very constructive move and absolutely the right thing to do. At the time, of course, we were all really pissed off that Burroughs was leaving New York. But, but uh, God, he, he thrived in Kansas. He really thrived out there. Got him on methadone maintenance, and he remained on that till the end of his days. And it was very heightening for his productivity. And it needs to be difficult to see Burroughs. And it's not going to prevent people that deserve to see him from seeing him to make them come to Lawrence most times. After all, Voltaire lived 25 years in a tiny town of Fernay in Switzerland, and the crowned heads of Europe made their way to his estate. We'll leave Burroughs on his methadone program in Kansas for now. Okay, where next? Outer space! 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 It's good. Can you just say outer space? Outer space. I am attempting to create... A new mythology for the space age. I feel that the old mythologies have definitely broken down and are uh, not adequate at the present time. The Nova Mob. Sammy the Butcher. Green Tony. This is the Nova Trilogy, told as only Burroughs can tell it. It depicts a space age war between the Nova Police, the good guys, and the Nova Mob, a band of aliens from outer space who want to enslave human beings through the virus power. This is science fiction, but it is science fiction in terms of what is actually here now. I have Nova conspiracies, Nova police, Nova criminals. The virus power manifests itself in many ways. In the construction of nuclear weapons. This is war to exterminate. In practically all the existing political systems which are aimed at curtailing inner freedom. The Earth is a slave planet. It manifests itself in the extreme drabness of everyday life in western countries. Are these the words of the all-powerful boards, syndicates, cartels of the earth? You must learn who and what the enemy is, their weapons and methods of operation. The alien enemy was in him. Like Burroughs, that proud American name. The enemy is in you. Proud of what exactly? Play it all, play it all, play it all back. Pay it all, pay it all, pay it all back. The key to Burroughs' obsession with power is in his own biography, his love-hate relationship with American culture, and his affluent St. Louis upbringing. But before we look ahead, let's turn backward for a moment to consider how all this began. This might surprise you. It began with this, the world's first practical adding machine. William Seward Burroughs invested 10 years of his brief life in its development. William's namesake and grandfather invented the first mechanical adding machine. By 1920, the Burroughs Adding Machine Company is worth over $400 million. Oliver Harris. Both sides of his family tied Burroughs to pioneering capitalists in 
business and military computing, that was the Burroughs adding machine, and also public relations, his uncle uh, Poison Ivy Lee. He was a press agent for Rockefeller and for Standard Oil. He also supposedly was going to work for Hitler, so uh, he was your classic press agent uh, with no values, uh, no morals. That's Burroughs' ancestors, capitalists and spin doctors. I think Burroughs reacted to that in his own work. The type of people that would become his enemies. Are these the words of the all-powerful boards, syndicates, cartels of the earth? Burroughs put his privileged, haute-bourgeois background, his classical education, to very good use by turning it back on itself. And that's really the key to the work that, uh, that came afterwards. I was born February 5, 1914, in St. Louis, Missouri. Like Burroughs, that proud American Maine. I never felt that I really belonged at all in the whole St. Louis uh, social structure. There was just something wrong there. Well, you can't mention Burroughs without mentioning the other members of the Holy Trinity. Beep, beep. On the drums, William Burroughs. On bass, Allen Ginsberg. On the trumpet, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> I won't do that again. They were a group Burroughs fit in with, pretty much. Basically, he was a man without a mission at age 29, 30, when he met Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. They're portrayed as a, a merry band of artistic, smiling, laughing pranksters. They were all miserable. These guys were in pain all the time. Yeah. That's what I would say. Burroughs, Kerouac, and Ginsberg formed a triangular friendship that would become the heart of an entire literary movement. Allen Ginsberg. I had matzo ball soup once with Allen Ginsberg. Did you? <laughs> it was possible to be gay without having to be ashamed of it in that, in that uh, generation, in that community. Burroughs was gay, I was gay, Kerouac was straight. It was a tolerant, extended New York family, hell-bent on personal freedom. We began experimenting, uh, myself, Burroughs, Kerouac, and Hunky and others, with uh, uh, benzedrine inhalers, and those were kind of interesting. While Burroughs was wallowing in drugs and young men in Tangier, the rest of the Beat Generation was in full swing. There is no doubt about the Beat Generation, at least the core of it, being a swinging group of new American men intent on joy. They called you Beat Generation. You think you live as you choose. Oh, you Beat Generation. I think you headed for the blues. Ginsberg's poem Howl was published in 1956. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Kerouac's On the Road was published in 1957. All that road going. Think of Dean Moriarty. I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty. I think of Dean Moriarty. Thank mm -hmm. you.
Though Burroughs wouldn't consider himself a beat writer, the three of them stuck together and supported each other's careers. By the late 50s, they were in Paris, keeping the bohemian theme going. I was one of the very rare Frenchmen that they knew because I'm half American and I speak English. They met artist Jean-Jacques Lebelle. And I would take them around to North African bars, mostly to buy some hash in the Bastille. Their base would become known as the Beat Hotel. It was a sort of paradise and hell at the same time. It was definitely the cheapest hotel in Paris. It wasn't very clean, and uh, there was only one phone. So uh, when Madame Rachou, the uh, lady who, who was running the place, had to call Brian, for instance, she went out into the street and said, Brion! Téléphone! You know, and he would put on his pants and, and run down, you know. It was like, it was wonderful. I'm David Delaunay. I, I co-manage the bookstore Shakespeare Company in Paris. What happened here is that um, very quickly uh, when this bookstore opened, it became a center for expatriates. They decided they'd do a reading here, especially for, uh, for Hal. Uh, in this room, actually, on the first floor of the, of the bookstore, which is more like a lending library than a, than a commercial space. And at the end of the reading, Burroughs uh, did a, a reading of a work in progress, which was, um, at the time, The Naked Lunch. I just want to rub up against you and get fixed. Ugh. Well, all right, but why can't you just get physical like a human? Right, we're on sex. Yeah. Naked lunch oozes sex. Seems like a good time to get libidinal. He didn't start life with any insecurity about whether his desires were legitimate. James Grauerholtz. So I'm sure it came as a great shock to him when he realized that his interest in other boys sexually was a great horror and either a crime or a sin, an illness, or all three. The spindly, sickly-looking teenage Burroughs was sent to Los Alamos Ranch School in New Mexico. Where they later made the autumn bomb, it seemed so right somehow, like the school song, far away and high on the mesa's crest, here's the life that all of us love the best. And in his diary, apparently he entered uh, his emotions and feelings and factual accounts of uh, sexual contacts with at least one other boy at the ranch school. The boy with whom he had some involvement turned on him and, you know, outed him and, you know, pointed at him and he became ostracized and blackballed. He contacted his parents and got himself yanked out of school on some medical pretext within 48 hours. But his belongings didn't go home to St. Louis with him. They had to be packed and shipped, including the diary. And I used to turn cold, thinking maybe the boys are reading it aloud to each other. When the box finally arrived, I pried it open and threw everything out without even a glance at those appalling pages. That was to put me off writing for many years. And he never really tried to write again until 1950. After Harvard and medical school in Vienna, Burroughs ended up in New York and met his first boyfriend, who would loudly cheat on him while William listened through a thin wall. To retaliate, he cut off the top joint of his left little finger with poultry shears. Heart and soul, I fell in love with you. Heart and soul, the way a fool would do magic. I think on Wikipedia they say I'm like widely acknowledged to be 
the last lover of William Burroughs, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what scholarship that's based on. In the late 80s, Burroughs met Marcus Urt. He was 18. William was 74. So um, how much detail do you want? Marcus met William in the bunker. So I arrived at the bunker. It's like two or three in the afternoon. And William is showing me all these different things on his desk, like a a scorpion and a paperweight and like some old dented bullets that had some story attached to them. And, and then I was like, oh, wait, he's he's nervous. I think finally we sit on the edge of the bed. He's sitting about half a foot away from me. We're not talking. It's very, very quiet. And then he moves his hand slowly onto my knee. And he takes the big, the big leap. And then I reach over and put my hand on his knee. And I give his knee a little squeeze. And then I threw my arm around him and kind of pulled him in to me. Like, come here, you little William Burroughs, you. So at the very end of this sexual experience, the very first one at the bunker, he, he came, and I think I came too, and uh, he said, oh, that was great. That was the first time that's happened in years. Marcus kept up the relationship in Williams, Kansas years. We're getting into bed, and I'm, I'm sticking my legs down you know, under the covers, there's this bump that my legs feel, and I'm like, oh, what's 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 that? My what's this hard thing? My legs are bumping against William. And he said, oh, that's that's a gun. I said, is it is this a, is it a loaded gun? He said, ah, of course it's a loaded gun. <laughs> You'd sleep with a lover with a loaded gun in your bed. Is that's 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 kind of a metaphor waiting to happen. <laughs> a hum of sex and commerce. Shakes the zone like a vast hive. Naked lunch. Yeah. I had been occluded from space-time like an eel's ass occludes when he stops eating on the way to Sargasso. The heat was off me from here on out to a landlocked junk pass where heroin is always $28 an ounce. And you can score for yen box in the chink laundry of Sioux Falls. A naked lunch, it sounds like a Gwyneth Paltrow cooking special, you know? Yes, I have a wonderful naked lunch with my children named after vegetables, and we're all so beautiful, everything's beautiful, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. pass the money, you know? <laughs> Eventually, the book was Burroughs' biggest success. Naked Lunch. What better title could that be? Could you were go into a store and say, excuse me, do you have Naked Lunch? No wonder it was a bestseller. In 1962, Naked Lunch was banned in Boston for obscenity, a decision that was reversed by the Massachusetts Supreme Court in 66. It was the last literary censorship trial in the United States. John Waters. And it got banned. That always really helped. And because it was experimental, in the real sense of the word, it was hallucinatory. The brain, front, middle, and rear must follow the adenoid, the wisdom tooth, the appendix. You know, people hadn't had hallucinations yet. They hadn't taken drugs. So they read this, and it was like, wow. I give you my masterwork, the complete all-American de-anxietized man. And it scared people and it delighted people and it was like no other book anybody had ever written. And that always works. The man wriggles. His flesh turns to a viscid, transparent jelly that drifts away in green mist 
unveiling a monster black centipede. Wait, we haven't even mentioned Joan yet. Okay, it's time to talk about how Burroughs shot his wife. My name is Kathleen Gray. I met William in uh, 1974, and I knew him for 23 years. In the 70s, artist Kathleen Gray invited Burroughs to give a talk in New Mexico. She asked him a couple questions. What is your attitude towards women? And he said, I killed the only woman I ever loved. We just stared at each other for possibly a full minute. Then he started to sob, and I just held him. And he was crying, and then he was whispering how much he loved her, how she'd actually saved his life on a couple of occasions. I don't know if there was ever an hour that went by without him thinking about it, and his regret at what had happened. In 1946, Burroughs met Joan Vollmer through Ginsburg. Jack and I decided that uh, Joan and Bill would make a great couple, that they were matched for each other fit for each other, equally tuned and equally witty and equally intelligent, equally well-read. It wasn't uncommon for gay men to marry women then. One time she said, well, said, Igor, you're supposed to be a faggot, but you're as good as a pimp in bed. <laughs> well, I thought this was nonsense, so I still do. Joan was into Benzedrine. William was, of course, into heroin. In New York, he began dealing and stealing from drunks on the subway to finance his habit. Oliver Harris. We went to Mexico City in late 49. It was the perfect place for Burroughs. He, he could be a, a queer, he could be a heroin addict, and it didn't matter because he could still flaunt the privileges of being an American abroad. And in a way, it did him a lot of good to... to unleash a dark side of him which was crucial to his becoming a great writer. Joan was uh, not making it with Bill and I uh, was a little irritated with him. Bill had been off with a uh, young friend. That day I knew something awful was going to happen. I remember I was walking down the street and tears started just streaming down my face. Well, if that happens to you, watch out, baby. The something bad happened at a party they went to that night. James Grauerholtz. It appears to me clear that Joan was teasing him or taunting him. And there's the boyfriend, secretly, known to Joan. And evidently, he said, we're going to move to the deep jungle in South America. That way I'll kick my habit. And she apparently said something like, how will we survive? Oh, I'll shoot wild boars and, and game. And she said, oh, with your marksmanship, we'll starve to death. And he says, oh, well, why don't we show the boys what kind of a shot old Bill really is? Then I said to Joan, it's about time for our William Tell Act. And she put a glass on her head. I'd fire the shot. The, the glass hadn't been touched. Joan started sliding down towards the floor. Then Marcus said, Walked over and took one look at her. He said, Bill, your bullet just hit her forehead. I said, oh, my God. Had you done the William Tell thing before? Never. Just an absolute piece of insanity. When I first heard about it way back when, the, the cynical me went, well, of course, what a great place to do it. <laughs> you, you get away with it down there. You know? But, um, you know, upon reflection, 
I would say this. When you've been drinking, drugging, or doping, there's, there's something that kicks in that involves a disregard for human life. Mm. Yes, there sure is. He called it, you know, ugly spirit or whatever. And so it may lead your hand in a bad way. Do I think that he was in any way consciously thinking at that moment, well, this is a good chance, maybe I'll miss, or no. No, 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 not this person. Uh Will Self has an opinion. Well, Burroughs murdered his wife, and that's not necessarily a fashionable or accepted view. When I wrote a new introduction to the Penguin Modern Classic of Junkie, I had a very close look at it again. I had a cold case investigation, and I simply do not think you can rule out the very strong possibility or indeed likelihood that there was some element of intentionality involved in him aiming a loaded gun at his wife's head when she had a shot glass on top of it, a gun that he knew to be inaccurate. Either way, the apologists for Burroughs, who say it was a dreadful accident and so forth, are just like the apologists for Burroughs that there are in every area. And and what we call apologists in the addiction world are enablers. And I think that enabling somebody to escape the the reality of their homicidal actions is probably the worst kind of enabling you can engage in. Enabling his addiction is, is almost besides the point. Burroughs wrote queer while he was awaiting trial. In the introduction, he wrote, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death. The death of Joan brought me into contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I had no choice except to write my way out. But when he talked about writing his way out of it, I I think that in order for his recognition as a writer to exceed his notoriety as an uxoricide, he had to become a really good writer. That's what I mean by write his way out of it. Well, I'd rather have the woman than the books. I mean, I think that's the, that the artistic defense only really cuts any ice with the kind of enablers. All right, I'm going to take a break here. Take five or ten minutes and I'll be back. You can Cut up the sentences or put them all together. Cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up project. Cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up project. Okay. Cut up, cut up, Montana. Iggy, what do you think? I don't know what that is. Cut ups after the break. Yes, you are still listening to This American Life from WBEZ Chicago. That is in a minute when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Today on our program, Burroughs 101. This week, the writer William Burroughs would have been 101 years old. He died in 1997 at the age of 83. We are marking the birthday with this great documentary made for BBC Radio 4 a year ago on his 100th birthday. Iggy Pop narrates. We pick up with cut-ups. So can you tell me, uh, just uh, what do you make of the, the cut-up method? How different is the cut-up method really from what they used to call the magic eight ball? <laughs> Do you yeah. know what that is? Yeah, or a Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a Ouija board for art people. <laughs> this is what it is. Language is a virus. Language is a virus. Virus is a language. Human scummery. Control is a virus. Language control. The virus. 
language is a liar. The power and the things that we want to express using the language are not as interesting, as useful, or as dynamic as things that the language could say itself if only you would let the language talk. The pretenses don't have much weight if you just give them a little push. But that was what I took the cut-up to be, basically. Brian Geisen was living with William Burroughs at the time in in, in the Beat Hotel in Paris. One day Burroughs would describe him as the only man I ever respected. It's while he was um, doing his artwork that he discovered the the cut-up. It occurred because I had a number of uh, sheets of newspapers and I took a a Stanley blade and, and cut through them and... Little bits and pieces uh, looked so amusing to me that I started jiggling them around as, as one would in a collage. And he showed it to William Burroughs, and Burroughs immediately started using that technique. Cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up, cut up, created a new way of writing a novel. To help explain, we'll need a true Burroughs obsessive. When I see Naked Lounge on, like in a charity shop or a junk shop on the shelf, I don't want it to be the on its own. I, I just want to bring it home to Daddy, you know. <laughs> Barosian Ian McFadgen. The cut-up books contain within themselves the descriptions of the methods of their own creation. This is a technique, and like any technique, it will, of course, be useful to some writers and not to others. What is produced is uncanny. You read through it. You read underneath it. You get the back of the mask. These colorless sheets are empty. You never existed at all. Goodbye to William. He used the cut-up technique as a way of examining the media. Thing police keep all boardroom reports and we are not allowed to proffer the disaster accounts. Discourses of the police, of government, of authority, but also the gibbering voice inside each of us. I'll by God show them how ugly the ugly American can be. Which frustrated Burroughs throughout his life. Me, I am looking around, and the more I look, the less I like what I see. Burroughs wrote The Soft Machine, the ticket that exploded in Nova Express using cut-up. It's not just the writing, which was uh, well-known. Oliver Harris. It was the photomontages, the tapes, the artwork... Rather than cut up being a dead end, it was incredibly, it, it proliferated, it overran uh, expectations and possibilities. Now here are some tapes which Brian made with all the technical facilities of the BBC in London. And they show, I think, what can be done with a human voice and one phrase. All active, calling, calling all reactive agents, calling all active agents, calling all active agents, calling all active agents, calling all agents, reactive Calling all reagents. I'm also working on a short film with Mr. Anthony Balch. Towers. Towers. Open. Open. Fire. Fire. Who are you? I'm Bill. Who are you? I'm Tony. Where are you, Bill? In a 1920 movie, Tony. Where are you? I'm in London. The total taste is here. Have a happy, have a happy. Is this machine recording? 
Is this is machine this recording? Is this machine recording? Johnson, addressing a meeting of editorial cartoonists at the White House, held three maids at gunpoint and proceeded to ransack the apartment. Oh, the cut-up project was, in Burroughs' own terms, a disastrous success, in the sense that um, it was impossible. But they have something which is ferocious about them, and yet very funny. They're experimental, they're obscene, they're political, they're spiritual. A great call to arms against the 1% who, in his view, was screwing the planet. With the 60s hippies transforming into 70s punks, the Burroughs effect multiplied. Why do you think the punks found such an affinity for, for Burroughs? There's this undercurrent of, all oh, this shit is a bunch of shit. You people are a bunch of shit. I don't have to respect the shit out of you. A disrespect. This is the way I do cut-ups. I don't know if it's like the way Brian Tyson does his or... or... Barrows does his, I don't know. But this is the way I do. David Bowie. What I've used it for more than anything else is igniting anything that might be in my imagination. I mean, it can often come up with very interesting uh, attitudes to look into. Join us for the feast. New York is a Burroughs is now affecting everyone, all the big names, musicians, artists, hipsters, they all love him. And for once, it's back home in America. Wine and dine your dreams until they all come true. That's my Swift cover voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful time. Don't forget, we just got rid of Nixon. New York City, 1974. There was a whole rebirth of this sensibility because the Nixon administration had tried really hard and quite effectively to destroy the counterculture. And so Burroughs' return was almost seen as, as like the king returns to, to take his throne now that the evil king has fallen. Burroughs was the king of the underground. Victor Bacris was then a journalist and close associate of Andy Warhol and Burroughs. I remember a great scene at the St. Mark's Poetry Project. Patti Smith on stage in 74, uh, finishing a reading by saying, Guess who moved back to New York? William Burroughs. Isn't that great? And I thought at that moment, how wonderful that this new vibrant movement of punk is not going to try and kill its fathers, but is going to actually welcome them and salute them on, on their way to, to their own success. You know, Not long after he settled in New York, William met the most important person in his late American career, James Grauerholtz. James was 21. Burroughs was 60. So James had come to offer his services to me as a secretary. Ginsburg. And I, I was sort of hoping lover because he was kind of cute. He was 21 and 20. But, uh, and Bill had just come back, and I was worried about Bill getting straight, so I said, okay, if you want to be my secretary, first thing to do is go down and see Burroughs. I went up and uh, met him. We had some drinks. Within a week or so, he invited me to move in with him. And I did roommate with him and sleep with him for about six weeks. And then I, I met someone closer to my own age whom I moved in with. I told William, if we can be friends, I think we can be friends for life. Little did I know 
James was Williams' manager for the rest of his life. I was his reader, his audience, the person who couldn't wait to see what he had written, to go over it with him, to discuss it with him, to bring him more things, to write the next part of it. I was the one who cared what he had spent the day doing. Grauerholtz organized public readings for Burroughs. The young punks crowded in to see their long-lost crazy uncle. It all climaxed with the Nova Convention. This is the Nova Convention. Welcome to the Nova Convention. This is a test. The Nova Convention was a very important event in New York. It was the first time at which it was a public meeting all, all the elements of the beat punk generation came together. Ladies and gentlemen, William Burroughs. This is the space age, and we are here to go. Only those who are willing to leave everything they've ever known in time need apply. And uh, the people who organized it tried to invite a number of artists from different mediums, such as Patti Smith, uh, Keith Richards was supposed to be involved. I mean, Frank Zappa came to it, all sorts of people came. Just setting up for the great uh, Frank Zappa. Hiya. <clears throat> Did I ever tell you about the man who taught his asshole to talk? William was one of the first people that ever branded himself, right before there was such a word as that, by how he looked, how he talked, how he, how he baited people, how he, he was almost predictable in his macabre sense of humor. So, but it wasn't a lie. William really was like that. I mean, I think he was like that when nobody was there, too. I don't think it was an act. But at the same time, he lent himself very well to fame. In 1981, William appeared on Saturday Night Live graciously introduced by the actress Lauren Hutton. I'm very pleased tonight to introduce a man who, in my opinion, is the greatest living writer in America. In his first television appearance ever, here is Mr. William Burroughs. <laughs> Dr. Benway, ship's doctor, drunkenly added two inches to a four-inch incision with one stroke of his scalpel. Perhaps the appendix is already out, doctor, the nurse said, peering dubiously over his shoulder. I saw a little scar. The appendix out? I'm taking the appendix out. What do you think I'm doing here? He lifts the abdominal wall and searches along the incision, dropping ashes from his cigarette. <laughs> 100 million views, laughter, respect, a literary halo. We're getting into the cat section. It's almost like, all right, this is, you know, we got to the point where Burroughs is at his height, you know. It's almost like we should stop there, but we're not. Oh, uh, what haven't we covered yet? Hey, cats. Right, we're getting into the cat section now. All right. At the, and good news is, it's the last section. Evidence indicates that cats were first tamed in Egypt. The Egyptians stored grain, which attracted rodents, which attracted cats. I postulate that cats started as psychic companions, as familiars, and have never deviated from this function. Do you like cats? I do like cats. I'm a, I, have, I feed so many cats that I'm a little bit pissed off at them right now because I spend a lot of time money feeding them all the time. And what they do, the way they get me to feed them, and my wife too, I feed them here and in the islands. Mm -hmm. So they just come and stare at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I find this desperate attempt to win a human protector deeply moving. The cat does not offer services. The cat offers itself. He has this line where he just says, cats give you themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have that's, that bit in there. That's a deep line. Yeah. You know? In one of his last books, The Cat Inside, William writes about some of the many cats he owned, like Ruski, Ginger, and Calico. Burroughs' young lover, Marcus, visited him. You know, I think he had it at least six cats while I was there. And he had this one cat that would really pretty much hug you. It would, like, stand up on your... I've never seen a cat do this. Would If you're sitting on the sofa, it would, it would stand up on its hind legs on your lap and put an, uh, a paw, its front paws, on either one on either side of your head and just kind of look right at you and kind of press its head in close to you. I mean, it was the... It was the damnedest thing, and William just loved his cats. I mean, he loved his cats so much. And, and I'm not trying to, I, you know, I'm not trying, he, he loved people too, but I think it was a much more scary and fraught and frightening uh, thing for him. Toward the end of his life, Burroughs became more concerned about the environment. It was like his childhood in St. Louis was fading away, the old, beautiful Midwestern America. William could feel the loss. The magical medium is being bulldozed away. No more green reindeer in Forest Park. The angels are leaving all the alcoves everywhere. As the forests fall to make way for motels and Hilton's and McDonald's, The whole magic universe is dying. The rainforests of Borneo and South America are going to make way for what? For what? I think he was a deeply sad person. Deeply, 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 deeply sad person. So I think William did have this deep, deep, deep skepticism about people being able to connect. And I think specifically, people being able to connect with him. There must have been a split between the cats who accepted domestication and those who did not. One day, one of his closest friends, Tom Pescio, uh, went to see him at dinner time, and William was having a coughing fit and had been having having chest pains. And within a few minutes, Tom had convinced him to let Tom call 911 and me. He went to the hospital. He was not conversing. And then they got him sort of stabilized. His eyes were open. He seemed to hear, but he wasn't speaking. William had made a no extraordinary measures instruction. Uh... In other words, not, not I'm going to say, do not resuscitate. <clears throat> and uh, William simply took his last breath. And that is how he died. He was gentlemanly. He was uh, an old school gentleman. He uh, He had manners. He loved to have friends around him. He loved to carry on. He loved to meet new people. He loved his fans. 
In the media, there is this other stereotypical presentation of who William Burroughs was. Uh, the guy in a three-piece suit with a needle in his arm. But that's not the William I saw. That's not That wasn't him. He was a very complex human. But none of this biographical stuff is of any interest apart from the actual writing. And what worries me in the centenary year is that everybody's talking about how they met Bill and Bill said this and Bill said that. You know, actually, uh, no. I mean, people should really read the books. You have this image, a kind of cold, blue, almost ray-like, almost alien image, you know, and, of course, he could be like that. And he was like that in performances in public. It was his persona. But the real William Burroughs was just, uh, oh, just a wonderful gentleman and a, and a, and a great artist and uh, a great friend. I miss him very much. I'm really glad to talk about him. It means a lot to me. I miss him. I miss him. I miss him bad. Just a wonderful gentleman. Gentleman. Centenary, yeah. I miss him. Human means a lot to me. William talks to me every day. Alien image. I miss him. Read the books. Old school. Persona. With a needle in his arm. I miss him bad. What do you think the last words of the program should be? What's your final sum up of Burroughs? This wonderful... American man of a certain generation did his best to shoulder the burden of intelligence and sensitivity and to deal with his pain. That's what I would say. Brilliant. Thanks, Iggy. All right, man. Awesome. You're satisfied, and uh, I am, man. I I'm mean, still we, we, in one laid, piece. Fair we laid enough. Down a lot of stuff. There. All right. Burroughs 101 was presented by Iggy Pop. And when I say presented, I mean he narrated the show. The producer was Colin McNulty, executive producer Kevin Dawson. It was independently produced for BBC Radio 4 by Whistledown Productions. You can find out about other programs they've made at whistledown.net. This American Life is produced by Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey, Walt, Sarah Koenig, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Brian Reed, Robin Semi, and Augusta Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Production help from Simon Adler. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon, our production manager. Elise Bergersons, our office manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Elna Baker scouts stories for our show. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Co-founder. Thanks, co-founder. You're as good as a pimp in bed. Co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. Pimp. Tori, thank you so much. In bed. I'm Ira Glack. I'm Ira... Ba- <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ira Glass. Back next week. Back, 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 back. Ira Glass. Stories. More. This American Life. In bed. 